Right, so hey, um, we are uh, in part two of a series. We started this last week called Not Yet, and uh, we're talking about our futures. We're talking about uh, our future as individuals, the future in general, uh, and just everything that comes along with that, right? Sometimes when we think about the future or your own personal future, we tend to think about sometimes it elicits feelings of uh, of fear, of frustration, um, of uncertainty, sometimes excitement and anticipation and and expectation. Sometimes it's a combination of all of those things. Uh, And we've been exploring and we're going to continue to explore this idea that God actually has something to say about our futures. And so we started the series off last week uh, just by honing in on this idea. When we looked at uh, in the, some wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we looked at uh, the book of Revelation and this idea that God is making all things new and all things beautiful in its time, including you and me, that we are works in progress. We're not a finished product yet. Uh, and so that's really good news, that we're not a finished product yet, and he is working something in us. And Uh, Today, we're going to shift our conversation a little bit, because one of the things that we tend to think of when we think about our futures, we start thinking about what's the future going to look like, what's mine going to look like, you know, what am I going to do, what am I going to become, and there's kind of a buzzword that we either say it directly or we're getting at this idea of what is, like, my purpose, What's the purpose of my future? What am I going to do? Like, why? what does the future hold, and, and what's its significance? What, what is, is my purpose? We all ask that question in some way or another differently in different seasons of life. Uh, usually, the younger that you are, if you're a student here still, or you're, like, still in your maybe 20s, 30s, we kind of ask that question of, uh, b- like, big picture. What am I going to do with my life? What's my purpose in that sense? As you get a little bit older, those questions begin to, to change and maybe get a little more specific, and it's like, I've moved through a stage of life, so what's my my purpose now? What's this next thing? What am I supposed to do? But we're asking questions around what was the purpose of that experience or that circumstance, uh, around what is the meaning of my life? What's the point of all of it? If we bring faith into the equation, if you're a follower of Jesus, we start to ask, well, what, what, what's God's purpose for me? And what does he want from me? And, and why doesn't he make it more clear? Dang it. Um, as I've been doing this for a while now, the amount of conversations that I've had with people like, hey, Phil, can we talk? What do you think God's purpose for my life is? I'm like, I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? I mean, I can help you work through that and pray about that, but uh, you're talking to the wrong guy if you want to know God's purpose for your life. Um, But we we ask those questions, and I think there's a danger in the way that we look at things uh, or what we, we get confused, I think, about what purpose actually is. And this is partially or maybe primarily because of just the way our culture is and what we value and what we don't is that we tend to uh, confuse purpose or, or define purpose by the things that we do, the things that we accomplish, the things that we achieve. It's like purpose is I have to contribute something good and useful to the world. And we think our purpose is wrapped up in that. Now, that, that's, that's good and those things are important. I think we should contribute in, you know, good and beauty to the world. I think humans are made to do that. And from a Christian perspective, God has made us to, to help bring flourishing to the world and to contribute and to do things as part of the image of God in us. But that's not our primary purpose. That we have a, a deeper purpose that actually leads to those things, but those are secondary purposes or tertiary purposes. I really just wanted to say tertiary because it's a fun word. I could be mean to make all of you say it, right? Like, say, say tertiary. <laughs> it's so fun. Okay, anyway, uh, but th- that's not our primary purpose. Because if our primary purpose is just what I contribute to the world, or just the things that I do, or just the things that I achieve, what do you do in seasons of life where you don't feel like you're contributing or achieving? There's certain times in life where it's like that's just not, a, not really a possibility. You know, when we're like young kids, we don't really contribute that much to the world. 
kids are awesome, they're sweet, I've got two of my own, love them. But in terms of like, are you contributing to the good and the functioning of the world? Not really. So we're saying that kids have no purpose. Or what happens when it feels like you're killing it and you're functioning in your purpose and then you get sick or you get injured? Do you lose your purpose? What about when you, when you tie purpose to, a lot of times we tie it to career. What happens when you retire? Maybe you've seen that before. People retire, it's like, what do I do now? I have nothing. Or maybe it's not career for you. Maybe we tie purpose to family and it's like, well, what happens when the kids move out and you're empty nesting? It's like, well, where did my purpose go? And again, all those things are, are good. Those things are fine, but that's not where our primary purpose is located. It's not where it's located. Those things are important, but they're downstream of what's most important. I'm going to argue that we do have a purpose in our lives and, and that it's a purpose, though, that doesn't change as we change. And it doesn't change as seasons change. It stays the same regardless of where we're at or what circumstance that we're in, and it informs everything else. So here's where we're going this morning, Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and, and start turning there, Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, you've got it on a mobile app. You can do that. We've got some Bibles at the back of the room. I'm going to have it up on the screen as well, uh, but I do periodically like to say, hey, you know, you, you can turn there um, to kind of train us, hopefully as a church, to, to know how to open this thing up on our own a little bit, because here's what I know. The rest of the week, me and this screen are not there with you, and you're probably really grateful for that, okay? <laughs> It'd be weird. I'm like, good morning. Would you like to talk about Jesus today? Uh, and so just to, to get us in the habit of doing that, so Isaiah chapter 6, like I said, it's going to be up here. Um, this is one uh, of my favorite passages in scripture for kind of personal reasons, and we'll talk about it as we get to that uh, certain point in the passage. But Isaiah is found in the Old Testament, first part of our Bibles uh, that we refer to as the Old Testament or just the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures, because that's what it is. It's the scriptures to the Jewish people, but it tells the backstory of the Jesus story, that Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of these things. Isaiah specifically, he's a prophet, and the role of the prophet was to speak on God's behalf to God's people. And usually what the prophets had to speak weren't such good messages. Uh, they were what we would say is a minority report. It was not the thing that the majority of the people were saying, hey, yeah, this sounds good. It was the thing that nobody was saying, uh, that God's people had always turned astray, and especially God's leaders had turned astray, and the prophet would come along and say, y'all are messed up, and you need to turn back, and you've been unfaithful to God. So it was, a, it was this mixed message of judgment, hey, you turned away from God, but then also hope. Even though you've been unfaithful, God's still faithful, and so he'll still keep his promises. And so this is Isaiah's role. This is Isaiah's function. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we get a glimpse, a picture of him kind of stepping into that role, him stepping into that function of prophet and how that happened and, and kind of his commissioning. And we might talk about that as his purpose or his mission or his calling. So Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to start things right in verse 1. We're going to hit the first 10 verses. We read this. That in the year that King Uzziah died, I'm going to pause there for a minute um, and just point out a little detail here. So, so Isaiah lets us know this is when King Uzziah died. Uh, you'll have to forgive my sloppy writing today. My pen died in the first service, so the old pointer finger. It's been doing that a lot lately, losing connection. If you, you're like, Phil, it seems like that happens a lot. I know. Maybe I need a new one. Moving on. King Uzziah died. Uh, so this is, King Uzziah is a, is a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He dies somewhere around 730 B.C. And so one of the things that, that I, I want us to appreciate about Scripture and the Christian faith is that it's not just, this isn't just like a book of religious sayings or religious teachings. It's not just simply, hey, there's some wisdom in here or some theology in here. It has all of that, but it's all anchored to things that actually happened in history. 
You can learn about King Uzziah and what was going on in the world at the time that he was reigning and the interactions that the people had with the nations around them, the Babylon and Assyria and the Egyptians. And so Isaiah is stepping into something and he's wanting us to know right off the bat, this happened. I was there. Here's when it happened. And he says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is having a vision. He says, I saw something. And what his vision is going to be of, it's, it's like the veil is being removed. And Isaiah's eyes are being opened up to see what is going on kind of beyond reality in, in the throne room of God, in the, the heavenly places, as we might say. That as we understand scripture, as we kind of begin to, to, to read through it, there is a theme that runs through of these two different, we could call them a spheres or realms. The Bible simply calls them heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Earth, uh, it's, it's probably how we would define it now. It's, it's where we're at, right? It's the thing that we're standing on. It's the ground beneath our feet. Earth is this physical existence, and we are physical embodied creatures made to uh, in, inhabit a physical and embodied in existence. So when, when Scripture says earth, it's what it's talking about. It's the human space. But when Scripture says heaven, it's probably not necessarily what we think of right away because of just the, the influence of just our kind of pop culture and the way that we think about God, when we think heaven, we think, oh, the place you go after you die. But in the eyes of, of the biblical authors, that wasn't heaven. Heaven to them, if earth is God's space, or human space, heaven is God's space. If earth is kind of like the physical realm, then heaven is the, the spiritual realm. It is the place where, where God and other spiritual beings dwell. And in the beginning of the biblical narrative, in creation, heaven and earth are overlapped. Like, like the two overlap, and so you have God's space and human space together. So we read in the first pages of Genesis that, that God walked with, with Adam in the cool of the day because those spaces were overlapped. We see when things go wrong in Genesis 3, this serpent shows up and kind of deceives the people. And, and later books of the Bible identify, hey, this serpent is the adversary, the, the Satan, right? He's some sort of a spiritual being. You ever realize that Adam and Eve, they, they, they think it's totally normal for the serpent to be there. They're not like, oh my gosh, there's, a, there's this spiritual being here. They're like, oh no, because we're used to seeing these beings. It's heaven and earth overlapped. But then sin comes into the world and what was overlapping heaven and earth now, they separate. They're separate spaces. And throughout the biblical narrative, we see moments, we see places where they come back together in significant ways. And throughout scripture and in this passage, that, that very, very significant place is in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, what starts as the tabernacle when they're in the wilderness then becomes the permanent structure of the temple. It was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. And so whenever the Israelites would go to the temple, they were meant to be like transported in their minds back to Eden, back into God's space. If you've ever read through uh, like the, the, the Bible, or maybe you're like you're doing it this year, like I'm gonna read the whole Bible. And I'm starting in the beginning, and you get to you know you get into like Leviticus and you get Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you get into some of these really really weird, really specific instructions of how to build the tabernacle. And there's all this gold, and there's all this ornate details, there's these fine linens, and all of that was meant to was very specific, so that when they came into the temple, it was a way of transporting them in their minds. Okay, we're entering into God's space. And so at the center of the temple then was what was called the Holy of Holies. And that was the place where God's presence dwelt. And so it was the overlap again of heaven and earth. The temple was the place where God's presence was on earth. So Isaiah is having this vision. He's either at the temple in Jerusalem or he's having a vision about the temple in Jerusalem. We're not really sure. 
But as he's there, or as he's having this vision, all of a sudden, it's not just the physical temple on earth anymore. It's like the veil is pulled back, and he's able to see, as he says, uh, the Lord high and lofty on a throne. And so he sees God seated on his throne, uh, like above, above the earth, in the heavens, in his space, and the hem of his robe filled the temple, the physical space. So literally, the hem being the bottom portion of the robe. We read in other places of scripture that God sits uh, on his throne and that the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies, the place where his presence is, the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool of the throne. That there's two spiritual beings called cherubim on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant and, and it's, it says that God is enthroned above the cherubim. And so here's this picture that Isaiah is seeing. He's in the temple where the presence of God is, but he sees God up on his throne, the temple filling the robe in this overlapping of heaven and earth, and his eyes are being opened up as he's in the presence of God. And he continues to describe what happens in that space. He says that there were seraphim standing above him, and they each had six wings, and two, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And so seraphim are a kind of spiritual being. Uh, seraphim, it simply means, it, it's actually the Hebrew word for snake that's just transliterated then as seraphim. Uh, and because if, if our translators just put snake there, we'd be like, why are there snakes in, uh, in the throne room of God? But they're these spiritual beings that are serpent-like in form, and they're there in the throne room of God. They've got six wings, they're covering their faces, and they're flying, they're covering their feet, and you're like, what is happening right now? There is a... Uh, there's several different memes and stuff that, that go around of if you actually saw an angel in real life, what it actually looks like. Does anybody see these? It's just covered with eyes. I saw one that someone was like, it's a legitimate angel food cake. And it was a cake covered with like eyes all over it. I thought it was funny. I laughed. I chuckled. Um, and so, but you get the idea. like, hey, this is, not a, this is not an earthly creature here. There is something else going on. Because again, in the, the heavenly space, in, in God's space, there are other spiritual beings. Sometimes we're, they're called seraphim, cherubim, sometimes the host of heaven, the heavenly host, the armies of heaven, these spiritual beings. But they're not God. Like, there's only one who is described as being on the throne. There's only one God of God and Lord of Lords, and that's reflected in the, the, the uh, kind of posture that these seraphim take towards him. They call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And so these spiritual beings are just crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, of armies or heaven's armies of the heavenly host. He's the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the king of kings. His glory, it fills the whole earth. Like the, like the earth cannot even contain the glory of God. And when they, when they say this, when they're calling back and forth, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And so we have this overlapping again of the physical space, but then something else is going on. The, the doorways are shaking, and the temple is filled with smoke as Isaiah sees this. This is a very similar picture to what we get at another point in Scripture when the disciple or the apostle John has a, a vision of this kind of heavenly space. Jesus gives him this vision. We have it recorded in what we call the book of, um, of Revelation. And John is there, and he sees the heavenly space as well, and he sees spiritual beings calling out to God, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so this, this is happening, and, and you put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. He's having this vision. He's in the presence of God. He's like, I'm in the temple, but I'm also in the heavenly space. I'm seeing God on his throne, and, and his robe is filling the temple. And then we have these six-winged, snake-like spiritual beings that are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah has a, a visceral reaction to this. As he sees this and takes it all in, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, 
I am ruined. You might say, ruined. He was ruined. Because it was more fun that way. Right? He says, I'm just ruined. In other words, I am done for. It's, it's over. I'm, I'm up a creek. I am toast. This, I am going to die is what he's getting at. And the reason that he says he's going to die, he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now, that, that's just kind of a, a figure of speech or a symbolic thing. The problem with Isaiah isn't just his lips. It's representing his entire body, his entire being. We would say he's saying, I am a sinful human being. I've got problems. I have evil inside of me. I have sin inside of me. I have brokenness inside of me. I do things. I say things. I think things that I know I shouldn't do, say, or think, but I keep doing it anyway. And then he also says, not only am, am I that way, but I am a part of a culture and a people and a society that it's just the whole thing is infected. I live among a people of unclean lips. I have this brokenness in me. He's identifying this thing that's in all of us as humans. You know, whether you're uh, you know, a person of faith or not, maybe you're still exploring, maybe you're, you've already settled on that, but there's something we know about human beings. It's like, why do we do, say, think, and act the way that we do, even though we know, like, I know that's wrong, but I can't stop myself from doing it. Isaiah's tapping into that. He's realizing that about himself, and he says because of, of his sinfulness, and he has seen the king, the Lord of armies, he's seen the glory of God, the one who is holy, 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 and he's realizing he's holy, 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 and I am not, not, not. And he says, I'm ruined. I'm done for. Because sinful humans, sinful humanity cannot be in the presence of a perfect and holy and good God. The two are incompatible. That the holiness and the goodness of God would just, it consumes us. That those two things don't go together. And we think about that, we're like, man, that's really harsh. God's just like, out of my presence, you peasant. I mean, I, sometimes I think that's how we think about this. Like, well, is he too good for us? But when we take the whole idea of scripture, like, well, no, that, that, that can't be because God himself becomes human and gets up close and personal and gets close to us. There's something else that's going on. The, the, the best way that I heard this described was a very helpful word picture for me. Maybe it'll help you out as well. Was, I think it was on the Bible Project podcast several years ago, and they were talking about the glory of God or the holiness of God. And they used the example of the sun. They're like, is the sun bad? No, the sun is good. The sun is amazing. We would die without the sun. It gives us life and light and energy and warmth. Like our, our world does not function or exist. Life cannot exist without the sun. So we know that's true. Do you want to be close to the sun? No. It will destroy you. It, you just, you're, what you're made of cannot survive in the presence of the sun. They said that's, that's the holiness and the glory of God. He is good. He is the source of all life and all beauty. And, and every breath that we have, every good thing we have, it comes from him. He is amazing. But because of our corrupted sinfulness, we just can't be in his presence. And so Isaiah is having this realization. He's recognizing that he has a massive problem. He's like, what am I going to do? I'm ruined. I'm ruined. And then the solution presents itself. One of the seraphim flew to me. In his hand was a glowing coal that, had, that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah's problem was his, his sinfulness, his iniquity, uh, the, the evil that was in him. And now something happens that, that takes care of that. And there's kind of three things I want to point out in the way that this happens that is significant for this passage. Uh, number one, you notice the place where the, the angel puts the burning coal to. He puts it to his, to his lips, right? He touched my mouth with it. Now, again, this is symbolic of his entire being. 
He's not, it's not just his lips that are sinful, it's all of him. And so it's not just his lips that are being uh, purified, it's all of him. As he says, you know, right after this, your iniquity is removed, your sin is atoned for. And so on a broad sense, it's talking about him being purified, being cleansed, being forgiven. But then very specifically, as we think about the calling of Isaiah, what God is going to call him to, he's calling him to be a prophet. And the primary tool that a prophet would use to fulfill their commission by God was their words. It was their speech. It was their mouth. It was their lips. And so not only is there the broad sense of, hey, you're forgiven, all of you, but also the thing that I am calling you, the thing that I'm going to use in you, I'm going to redeem that for my good and for my glory. They touch his lips. The second thing I want to point out is what do they touch his lips with? And it is a glowing coal or a burning coal. Uh, it wasn't something that was on fire and they took the coal out. You know, it's not like charcoal. Um, it's not Simba, okay? It's a burning coal to his lips. I mean, the, like the seraphim have to use tongs because like, I guess spiritual beings can get burnt, so they use tongs. I don't actually know. Um, but this idea of it's on fire, that fire throughout the, the biblical story is used as a picture of, of purification and as refinement. That every time there's these passages that come about, like about, about fire, the Lord being a consuming fire, specifically in the Old Testament talking about the day of the Lord, when, when God comes and returns and there's all these images of fire, it's not simply, uh, you know, the, the biblical author saying, ha ha, God's going to burn this earth and burn you all and you're all going to die. It, it's not about that. It's about a purification. That the imagery of fire is not about punishment, but about purification. That because of the evil, like God is coming to purify his good world, to rid it of sin and evil and death and suffering. And so this fire that is coming to the lips of Isaiah symbolizes the purification that he is receiving, the burning away of, of, of your brokenness and your corruption and your sins. That's the second thing to notice. The third thing is this. Remember, we're, we're having an overlap of the heavenly space and also the earthly temple. The place from where the coal comes was the altar. And the temple was the altar. The altar is, uh, is the place in the temple where the priests would make sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for or to pay for their sins. The priests would come, they would slaughter an animal on the, on the altar to pay for and to cover the people's sins. And so here is the picture that Isaiah is getting. This is what he is his seeing, is that God is going to give Isaiah a purpose but he's a sinful person from a group of sinful people, and so there's a problem. And so to solve the problem from the place where the atoning sacrifice is made comes something that will purify Isaiah. There's a place where something had to die to forgive sin, and because of that, Isaiah's sin can be cleaned away, and he can be purified and right in God's sight. I just read that, and I'm like, come on. Like that, that's just got Jesus written all over it. Because for us, as we live now, there are no more animal sacrifices. There's no more priests in temples, like, slaughtering lambs every single time that we sin. But there was one sacrifice that was made, that God himself became human, died on a cross on Calvary. And from that event, from that place, from that location, has come the thing that has purified us from our sin. And Isaiah is in this place now where he's like, his, his, he's clean before God. He's pure before God. I don't know for sure if this is true or not, but I like to imagine that this experience that he has of being purified is informing Isaiah as he writes the famous suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, Isaiah writes, Isaiah 53, that he will be pierced for our transgressions, he will be crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that was on him brought us peace, that by his stripes we are healed. 
that Jesus is the place of that sacrifice that cleanses us. And so this happens for Isaiah. So this problem that he had of being in God's presence is, is now removed. And then God speaks. Isaiah records that he heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send and who will go for us? In other words, hey, I need somebody to go to these rebellious people of mine, these leaders of mine that keep turning their backs on me. I need somebody to go and deliver my message and call them back to me and get them to be faithful again and to pronounce judgment, but also to pronounce hope. Who's going to go for me? And Isaiah responds and says, here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. Now, the transition in Isaiah over like three verses is insane. At one point, he's, he's going, woe is me, I'm going to die, I'm in the presence of God, I can't be here, I'm done for, I'm ruined, and then the next minute, he's like, hey, uh, yeah, God, like talking to him directly, sure, I'll go, send me, I'm your guy. Like, what happened? What happened in that short amount of time is that Isaiah had his sin forgiven. Isaiah saw who God was, saw who he was, saw what God had done for him and said, if that's who you are and this is what you've done for me, then I can do anything that you ask me to do. If you are with me, I'm going, here I am, send me. Let's go. Now, I, I said at the beginning that this passage is one of my favorite in scripture because it has personal significance to me. This particular verse played a massive role in uh, my personal calling into vocational ministry. Uh, many of you know I owned a landscaping business for several years before I got into uh, ministry. And it wasn't like I just read this one day and I was like, hey, this is what I'm going to do from now on. But there was like a two-year process of I started volunteering at the church that we were at with, with students, and I was still doing landscaping and trying to figure it out, and I started praying, and some people started confirming some things in my life. And for like two years, I was like, no, you know, maybe I'll go back to school, maybe I won't, maybe I'll just be a volunteer, maybe I'll do these things, all the while kind of knowing that God was moving me in that direction. And then this verse hit me like a ton of bricks one day. And he was like, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And so this is the verse that is now tattooed on my arm as a reminder of, hey, I, I, I see who God is. I'm messed up. He has forgiven me. And he's sending me. Here I am, send me. And I used to think, and sometimes I still get into this, that the most significant part of this passage as it relates to my calling or my purpose is this part right here where God says, who's going to go? And I'm like, I'll go. But the older I get, I'm beginning to realize more and more that the most significant part is actually this part right here of what he's done for me. Because nothing else matters if it's not for that. Here I am, send me. God replies, Go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their minds, and turn back and be healed. And so Isaiah, God sends Isaiah, says, go, go, go speak for me. But essentially, he says, this is not going to be an easy assignment. It's not going to be well received. Isaiah was a prophet with a message of judgment, and his role was to deliver the message regardless of how people responded to it. And there's this foreshadowing of they're not going to respond to it. You're going to keep telling them, and they're going to keep ignoring it, and the judgment will be upon them. It's actually a verse that, that Jesus quotes in his ministry to kind of call out the religious leaders of his day to say, you, you're, you're, you hear me, but you're not listening. You see me, but you don't really understand. And Isaiah gets this message. And it's an incredible encounter, right? Isaiah... He gets to experience the very presence of God, like see God on his throne and, and be in his presence in that way. And it's this, this awesome encounter. And we think about, hey, this is Isaiah's purpose. This is his mission. This is his calling. And it's easy to think like I often do, that his purpose and his calling and his mission is that last part. Here I am, send me, and God's saying, go. Okay, that's your purpose. That's your mission, Isaiah. 
but that's a secondary purpose. That's a secondary mission. That none of that matters and none of that's possible without the primary one, which was Isaiah, Isaiah sees who God is, he recognizes who he is, and then he's forgiven. And out of that, out of that experience in the presence of God, he's able to be sent and to go. And it happens in that order. Uh, I think there's a similar dynamic for us as followers of Jesus today, that, that, that we are called to go, absolutely, but sometimes we skip to the going before the Jesus knowing. It just came into my head and it was really corny, but I felt like I needed to say it. But we skip to the, hey, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, but, but, but he's like, hey, but, but do you know me? Have you seen me? Have you experienced my presence? Has it transformed you? Jesus gives, Pastor Paul read it earlier, the, this, what we call the Great Commission. And it's almost like a, a, the Jesus version of what is happening here in Isaiah. God asks Isaiah, who will go and who will I send? Jesus doesn't really ask. He just says, hey, you're going. Matthew record this, records this for us. It's after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He tells his disciples that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus is like, who, who, who's going to go for me? Who am I sending? And he's like, hey, disciples, I'm sending you. And that's absolutely true. He sends them out to go and tell the world about who he is and what he's done. He, they, to go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And sometimes we read that and we think, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go and tell people about Jesus, which, by the way, you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, this command to the, the disciples then is a command to us as disciples today. Hey, go, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to share how good he is because he's been awesome and he's done something for the entire world. Sometimes that we forget that this isn't the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples. This was after he'd spent three years with them. They spent three years knowing him, being in his presence, hearing him teach, seeing the miracles, being healed themselves, being a part of all of this, and at the end of that saying, okay, now, go. Go. He didn't just, you know, one day go choose the disciples, say, hey, you're, I'm a complete stranger and you don't know me, as, know me at all, but go tell people about me. He says, no, like, you telling people about me is out of the overflow of you knowing me personally. That your primary purpose is to not go and change the world on, on behalf of Jesus. Your primary purpose is to know him, and then he will work through you to do things. But the primary purpose is knowing him. See, that, that is the, the purpose in our lives that is true in every single season, is to know Jesus and to be in his presence. That is the thing that doesn't change as life changes. That is the thing that doesn't change as we change. That is the purpose that remains consistent. You may have different secondary or tertiary purposes throughout your life. You, you, you know, your, your job may change. Your career may change. Your family situation may change. Where you live may change. And they may all serve a season and a purpose. And God might have something for you in that place and in that time. And he may be calling you to those things. But those things change. What remains consistent is time in the presence of Jesus, knowing him being transformed by him, and it's only out of that that the other things are even possible, that we even know them. And so here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you this week with a little bit of homework, a little bit of an assignment, and I simply want to challenge you every day to spend time in the presence of Jesus. 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, if you're feeling like an overachiever. But just to, to not spend time doing but say, you know what, for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, I'm not going to worry about what I have to do and the things I have to accomplish and the tasks I need to mark off my list. And that is so hard for me because I'm a task person. But to say for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, I'm just going to be in the presence of Jesus. 
to get somewhere where there's no distractions. Your device isn't with you. It's quiet. You read scripture. You pray. Just sit in silence and see what the Spirit might speak to you. But to spend time in the presence of Jesus. And as you do that, I want to encourage you to ask a couple of questions. Questions that are reflective of what Isaiah experienced. First question being, what do you notice about God? When Isaiah was in the presence of God, the first thing he noticed was he's enthroned, he's, he's high above, his glory is filling the earth, and he is holy, holy, holy. That was the first thing that he noticed. So as you spend time in the presence of Jesus, what, what do you notice about him? Second thing, what do you notice about yourself? You'll never know who you truly are until you know who God is. Because he is the one who has made you, who has created you, who has crafted you, who has designed you. So what do you notice about yourself? Good things. How has he wired you? What skills and talents and abilities and your personality, but also the things we don't like to notice. I think that's one of the reasons why we keep ourselves so busy and so distracted all the time. Because when I'm busy and distracted and life is loud, I I can kind of drown out the things I don't like about me. But spending time in the presence of God and you begin to have those things revealed to you of like... That's not so good, and I don't like that thing. And sometimes, a lot of times, we need that because that thing is there, and it's in us whether we acknowledge it or not. And so as we spend time in the presence of God, maybe we notice those things. It's like, I'm falling so short here. But don't wallow in that. Don't dwell in that because what is true for, what's true for Isaiah is true for you, that there is healing and there is forgiveness, that Jesus' death and resurrection gives us the opportunity of forgiveness and life. And so what do you notice about yourself? Okay, God, here's where I need help. Forgive me for falling short here. Help me moving forward. Next thing, what do you notice about the world around you? Isaiah has this recognition that he's from a a people of unclean lips, that people are broken, that they've turned away from God. What do you see going on in the world around you? What might God be calling you to do about it? Which leads into the last one. What might God be asking you to do? Isaiah got a very, very clear instruction that way. Hey, go, tell the people this. Uh, usually it doesn't work for us that way. Sometimes there are those rare moments in life where it's like, I just heard so clearly, uh, whether through scripture or prayer or a confirmation of a, a fellow believer or something, there are those moments where we get that confirmation. It's very, very clear. God wants me to do this. Usually it's not. Those, are, those are, seem to be rare in life. But what do you hear God's spirit leading you to do as you spend time in the presence of Jesus? So imagine we're all at different places um, in our faith journey. In our life journey, I was looking around the room, we got younger, older, or we'll say uh, people who are more experienced at life and people who are less experienced, who have different stages for family or different stages for career, all these different things. We're at different places, and so we're going to have different purposes, and maybe you're in a season right now where it's super clear and you're just crushing it, and I love what I've been called to, and it feels like I'm right in my sweet spot, and I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do, and there may be others of you who are like, I have no idea, Phil. It's, it's hard right now, and I'm confused, and I don't know what's happening. And anywhere in between, no matter where you're at on that spectrum, it's okay to be there. As we talked about last week, it's a season, it's a moment. But as you're there and as you're trying to figure things out, recognize that your primary purpose is to know Jesus, to know the one who's created you, who's designed you, who's died for you, to know him and to be in his presence, and everything else comes downstream of that. Regardless of what your future may hold, that remains the same. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that you are a God who we can know, who we can, we can be in your presence. God, that's an incredible thought to have, that you are the God who is holy, holy, holy. You are the God who, whose glory it cannot even be contained to this earth. 
and yet even though we are broken and we are sinful, we can be in your presence, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what you have done, that you sent your son to die for our sins on the cross, to, to rise from the dead, to defeat the powers of sin and death once and for all. And we praise you for that. Got to pray that that truth would just permeate everything about who we are, that our identity and our worth and our value and our purpose would not come from the things that we do, the things that we achieve, the things that we accomplish, but those things would come solely from who you are and who you say we are. So God, as we leave this place this morning, I pray that you just give us the strength to live that out. Uh, give us the courage to to lean into who you are and what you're calling us to. Got to pray for those who are uh, struggling with this idea, like, what, what am I supposed to do? I'm at this weird in-between place in life. Lord, I pray your spirit would speak to them. I pray that you would continue to move in them, put people around them who can speak into their lives. Got to pray for all of us, that no matter what we do, where we find ourselves, what the present looks like, what the future looks like, Lord, I just pray that, that it would be spent in your presence. And as we spend time with you, we would know that everything would be all right. Pray this in Jesus' name.